Hello and welcome to Lots of Planets Have a North, a Northern Doctor Who podcast. I'm Kieran. I'm Bethan. I'm Jacob. And you join us for the first part of our look at Series 9. Uh, as I think I said at the end of the last podcast that we did, actually, I've been really looking forward to this one for quite a while since we uh, decided to do it quite a long time ago, actually. So I'm excited to get into it. I will say uh, at the beginning, normally what we do is we watch through the whole series before getting into it, getting into any of the discussion, which I know you have done, Jacob. Mm. Bethan and I are lagging slightly this time. Uh, we've only gotten as far as the Zygon two-parter in our rewatch at the moment, uh, but for scheduling reasons, we've had to uh, bring this forward a little bit. Hopefully it won't matter too much in the grand scheme of things, but uh, just to to bring that up at this point. So, as tradition dictates, and since it is our first time in his August presence, I think um, we should begin by talking about the Twelfth Doctor. I'm so sick of losing. You didn't lose. You saved the town. I don't mean the war. I'll lose any war you like. Sick of losing people. Look at you. With your eyes. You're never giving up. To anger. No. Kindness. And one day, the memory of that will hurt so much that I won't be able to breathe and I'll do what I always do. I'll get in my box and I'll run and I'll run. In case all the pain ever catches up in every place I go, it will be there. You did your best. She died. There's nothing you can do. I can do anything. There's nothing I can't do. Nothing. But I'm not supposed to. Ripples, tidal waves, rules. I'm not supposed to. So last time, when we were talking about Tom Baker, we were talking a bit about this notion of, like, who your favourite Doctor is. Which one you gravitate towards in that way. Uh, and I know, Jacob, you were saying that, like, you know, the the notion of having a favourite Doctor is a little bit foreign to you, and that, like, you know, that they're, they're so different that it feels weird to compare them mm-hmm. in various ways. And, like... I actually broadly agree with that, with the caveat that we, when I, I am asked who my favourite Doctor is, as everyone inevitably is, Peter Capaldi is the one that I say. Uh, he's like my go-to. As to why that is, it's hard to kind of to describe why without just going into like a list of characteristics, as it is with a lot of Doctors, but there's a lot that I think he um, he brings to the role, and I think... One of the things, actually, is I remember after... I remember being a bit... I may even have mentioned this before. I remember being a bit disappointed when Matt Smith was cast, purely on the basis that I wanted an older actor. Uh, That's something that I think tends to work well on the role. Not that younger actors don't, necessarily. And so um, I remember for that alone, as well as just being a big fan of his, I remember being very excited when Capaldi was cast and really looking forward to see what he would bring to the role, and I wasn't disappointed. Uh, I think there's a substantial argument to be made, uh, and I think I'd be happy to mount it, that he is one of the best actors to have played the role, 
just kind of in terms of his general career and his general sort of ability, I guess. He's very, very... It's His tonal shifts, I think, are superb. In, in particular, I've, been, I've, been, I've had this in mind while rewatching Series 9. He's very good at comedy. Like, I think all of the, particularly the, the new series actors, have been very good at comedy. As well as, obviously, Tom Baker is, and Pertwee is as well, and, and McCoy, partly in their case due to their backgrounds. But I think Capaldi's very, very good at sort of uh, kind of doing a line reading that sits oddly in the context in such a way that like suggests his kind of alien nature a bit like what we were talking about with Tom Baker again actually but that does kind of either leaven the scene or kind of put a slightly different spin on how he's approaching things and that kind of thing he's very very good at kind of managing to do both kind of darkness and levity at the same time in a way that, for instance, I think Matt Smith is very good at both, but I don't know that he's able to combine them in the way that Capaldi does. And I think that, for me, is a big part of his charm. He's got a, um, just a superb sort of presence in the role. His physicality, the just the kind of the, the angularity of him, the fucking length of him, as a man next to me once said at a Nick Cave concert, and that has been stuck in my head ever since. There's something about the way he moves through a scene that is simultaneously kind of, I wouldn't say awkward, because that's, again, more Matt Smith's thing, but I guess alien, there's something of him that is slightly removed from the scene, and yet simultaneously commanding. Uh, He's a really arresting screen presence. And there's also, I think, I mean, this is partly, this is over the course of his whole tenure as well as uh, in this series but i think this series shows it off perhaps better than the ones on either side but i think he has a more more of an arc as a character than i than any other doctor to date yes. in terms of the evolution of his character because i mean we, we might talk about this a little bit when we start doing the series cause people talk sometimes about uh, matrician's apprentice which is familiar being like a soft reboot of the character which i don't agree with at all because i think it's that suggests that there is less continuity than there really is actually i think uh, dark water death in heaven is the real turning point but that's for another day and there's a there's a very obvious distinction between like series 8 12th doctor and series 10 12th doctor and yet they feel like very much the same character you can feel uh, a real continuity between the 12th doctor of deep breath and the 12th doctor of the doctor falls or twice upon a time for all that, a lot of how Capaldi acts in the character uh, seems quite different. And I think that's a real accomplishment. Uh, and it's a, obviously it's an accomplishment not only of Capaldi himself, for all that I'm kind of centering this on him, but of, of the writing as well. And the direction, indeed, I would say. He gets to work with some superb directors in his time. Uh, Rachel Talale, I suppose, being the standout. Uh, as we will see at the end of this series. And I think that really contributes to the sense of this. Simultaneously, the Doctor Who kind of probably changes the most over his time in the role. You could make an argument for Tom Baker as well, I think, but that's more due to how different ways he approached the role, as opposed to something that was planned out from the start. But like, there is this constant core to him. 
that I think putting those two things together, it's a real accomplishment. So, how do you feel about the Twelfth Doctor? It's very interesting that you refer to my comments in the previous uh, mm. episode, actually, because uh, I was going to do that anyway. Because yeah, I was saying like, oh, I, I you know, I, I struggle to to say like who's my favourite Doctor and stuff. And I have to admit, rewatching this, and the more that I rewatch Capaldi, the more that I think he is my favourite. Like, if I was pushed mm. and I had to say, like. Yeah, I completely agree. You know, he's one of the best actors to ever take on the role, if not the best. I think as it, it's so obvious, like that he he's kind of put everything into it. Like as a as a fan, you can tell this is what mm. he always mm. wanted to do, and he completely understands the nature of the character. You know, he kind of combines that that humor and the eccentricity, but he's also got the spikiness as well of like mm. Hartnell. Yeah, that, that's not to suggest that, you know, someone who isn't a fan can't play the Doctor very well. I just mean, like, I think it does... I think it give, it does give him an extra edge. And I think, for me, one of the big things is that he plays up the alien quality of the character. I think one of my problems, particularly with Tennant... Tennant, a lot of times, to me, doesn't feel, doesn't feel alien. And I feel like this Doctor really really plays up the alien and also plays up his his age and his experience. Mm, mm. And through a lot of that stuff, he asks, you know, these kind of big moral questions that I think should be at the heart of the programme. I mean, like, mm. you know, I'm, I'm a fan of McCoy's Doctor as well, so that kind mm. of makes sense, really. But, um, yeah, like, I think what, what I think is very kind of powerful uh, about Capaldi's Doctor is as you were saying, that kind of, that arc, because I think I mentioned this in a previous podcast, but the problem with the Doctor as a character is that they tend to be very static, almost by nature of the character, because they have to be, you know, kind of mysterious, and you have to obscure the, the character's origins, you know, and they, they have a certain role that they usually have to play within the narrative. It makes it very difficult to develop the character, and I think what's good about Capaldi's Doctor is he starts off as someone who is very alien, can't really interact with people in the same way that the other Doctors have been have been able to, and he's constantly questioning whether he's actually a good person. Mm. And particularly mm. in Series Eight, there's this kind of mm. utilitarian, almost utilitarian philosophy in some of it, like particularly early on. Um, you know, where he will do something that, you know, people might say is morally questionable because of some kind of greater, greater, you know, good, if you like. And I think what's powerful is the way in which he develops from that and he goes from that perspective to this perspective of, by the series 10 of like radical kindness, which is, you know, mm. completely not utilitarian uh, in, you know, it's. He, he, I think it really culminates in that speech he has in The Doctor Falls, you know, the brief speech yes, where yes. he says, you know, I do what I do because it's right, because it's decent, above all, because it's kind. Um, which I think is a really good message for the programme. But it's also, it, I think it's so much more interesting to get to that point after you've been on this journey. The problem that I have with, I, I, I know like we, we differ on this, but like the problem that I have with, Davison's Doctor or 
or Jodie Whittaker's Doctor is they do feel very static at the moment. Uh, I mean, Whittaker, Jodie Whittaker, we've not seen all of yet, so I guess mm. that's kind of unfair. But like, yeah, it, it does feel like they're kind of they're just very nice characters with a very clear moral framework. And I think, I think I know a lot of people kind of complained about Capaldi early on because they said, "Oh, he's too he's too mean, he's too nasty." And there are a few moments where I can see that. I think I think in particular there's some stuff in the Caretaker where he's interacting with Danny where I think it does go too far because I think there is a distinction between darkness and nastiness and I, I mm. think there are some points where it goes too far. But largely I think it's a good decision to make him darker and it's a good decision to make him less predictable and almost as though mm. the audience isn't sure whether you can trust him because you've then got somewhere to go and you've then got somewhere for the for the character to go and really this season is the centrepiece of that development i would say yeah you know with with him and clara and the way in which she kind of teaches him to be i, I guess to be a kinder person really <laughs> mm. um mm. but also he teaches her and you know that may or may not have catastrophic results as well as we'll we'll see um but yeah Jeez. i think I, I think all i'd say is like if anyone is kind of listening who turned off at matt smith or watched the start of capaldi and kind of went oh no i don't like this guy i'm just i'm i'm not gonna bother i would recommend giving him another chance and watching mm. and watching him all the way through because i think the the arc that he goes on is really quite something and it's as you were saying, I think a lot of people say, oh, well, he's a different character in each season. He's not. Mm. He goes through a very clear development that I think is very well plotted uh, mm. and was planned. Yeah, it's, it's it's great. And his acting is phenomenal. I mean, you know, we'll get on to the Zygon 2 part that everyone talks about, the speech at the end. That isn't even his best performance this season. No, no. Uh, no. <laughs> you know, he'll then go on to do the, the, the one-hander in, uh, in Heaven Sent, which is fantastic so mm. yeah he's great if you haven't watched him or you were skeptical about him please go back and watch him again i know i've certainly found like particularly because i went into the season very almost a bit pessimistically i wasn't happy with oh, okay. i wasn't happy with season seven series mm. seven uh, i wasn't particularly happy with series eight although i thought it was a bit of an improvement and and so i think by that point i'd got very skeptical i, I was very excited about capaldi's doctor I was less excited about the writing, I think. But I, I think, yeah, there were things that... I'll go into this later on, but there were things that irritated me watching this chronologically from season seven, eight, nine that I think clouded my judgment. And now that I look back at it in isolation, I appreciate it a lot more. Mm. So, yeah, anyway, I'll stop. <laughs> and Yeah, I... I... Uh, just before you come in, Beth, and I, I actually had a similar experience in that, like, I remember being fairly lukewarm on this series when it first aired. And, like, looking back, I I, I find it hard to figure out why. Because, mm. uh, as, as you will hear, I'm quite a lot more positive about this series now. I think, yeah, I was quite burned out on Series 7 as well. Uh, even though, again, there are bits of Series 7 that I actually like a lot better going back now and certainly series eight actually but yeah i remember 
I, on the whole, I think enjoyed this series when it first aired, but I think, with the possible exception of Heaven Sent, I don't think I really fully appreciated any of it as much as it deserved. And maybe the Zygon two-parter as well, actually. I remember liking that when it first aired. Uh, but yeah, that's that's quite by the by. So, Bethan, give us your 12th Doctor take. Okay. I mean, it's not tremendously controversial <laughs> in comparison to what everyone else has said. I don't know if um, I would necessarily say that Capaldi is my favourite Doctor, but that's just because I'm not really ready for that kind of commitment yet. <laughs> um, like, I don't really want to, like, you know, hang my colours or whatever it is, you know. Yeah, yeah, you want to keep your options open. Yeah, you know, um, I'm just exploring different Doctors right now. <laughs> so, um, I do really like him, though, and this is where I'm kind of going to echo Jacob a bit, actually, because I have a bit of a personal arc with um, Capaldi's Doctor and with this series, and Clara as well, that um, will probably unfold with some more of my points about episodes because a lot of what I'm going to be talking about at least talking about this series as a whole is my reaction when it first went out versus how I feel about it now and I think mm. I was excited when um, Capaldi was announced as the Doctor because I think he's really good and really like him and lots of other things but my feelings about his run until relatively recently was something along the lines of Peter Capaldi is a really good actor who gave a really good performance but was underserved by some of the scripts and I mm. think that was my or like by a lot of the scripts and that was my feeling until really quite recently seeing um rewatching Heaven Sent and seeing some other bits and pieces and and reevaluating how I felt about I did like I I did like um is it series 10 with Bill? Yeah. Mm. I liked that one like very much when it was out but I think mm. I'd sort of I had sort of had this idea that it wasn't good until then and so it's been interesting to go back and try and like tease out why I felt the way that I did and I do think that a big part of it was the kind of ideas that were floating around on the internet at the time of like Stephen Moffat being a bad a badman writing yeah, bad yeah bad works which looking back it's kind of weird to to remember how dominant that way of seeing things was because mm. it all relied on a lot of like assumptions about Stephen Moffat and about random comments that he'd made that mm. were possibly slightly ill-advised mm. and then just sort of mapping perceived trends in his work and I think some of that was fine, and I don't think that it should be that we think that creators are in any way above criticism mm. for how they put across certain ideologies or what have you. But I, I think that I went into it because of that, with an idea of what it was going to be like. And as Jacob was kind of saying, because of the preceding seasons, some of which hadn't been that great. I mean, we've covered episodes and, and parts of seasons on this podcast that had so, had some very dud episodes shall we say mm. and so I think that I wasn't really ready for for what the show was trying to do particularly with this season but throughout Capaldi's tenure because I was so much stuck in this old way of thinking about it but yeah I that was not really much about Peter Capaldi but basically 
I love the man. He's great. And his performance as the Doctor is really good. Hmm. And, yeah. Yeah, it's funny because, um, in a way, both of those um, takes that you mentioned. Firstly, the more specific one that... um, Capaldi is a very good actor who gives a very good performance but is underserved by the scripts which is more or less exactly my impression of um, Peter Davison actually, uh, funnily enough is still one that you hear I think less often than you did uh, but it's still something that gets thrown around quite a bit, as indeed does the um, Stephen Moffat is evil and is out to destroy everything you love take, which has slightly morphed since, say, 2012, 2013, uh, when it first sort of became very prominent. And actually, similarly, I think I was quite um, under that impression to some extent as well. Even though I think I was always... I always liked his stuff more than a lot of people who kind of espoused that opinion. But I still thought they maybe had a point to some degree. And to some degree, I think they did. Uh, In some ways. It did sort of rely on the idea that Stephen Moffat somehow runs the BBC. Yes, that's one of the major problems with it. Um. (laughs) And is directly responsible for every decision made on a show on which he is nominal showrunner. Or co-showrunner, in another case. But I think think both of those takes are less prominent now than they would have been a couple of years ago, even, I would say. Uh, I think there has been a kind of wave of re-evaluation. And so I think, like, I, that's in the last couple of years, and some of this story will come up in the course of Series 9, because Series 9 was, as we talk about it, because Series 9 was the one that, more than any other, when I went back to it, I was like, oh, wow, this is so good. I'll talk about that specifically with regard to some particular episodes. Because I liked Series 10, as likewise, when it aired uh, quite a bit, and was actually a little bit surprised by how much I liked it. I think at that point I thought, oh, there's been a big upturn in quality. When actually I think now, I, if uh, if anything, slight spoiler for the ends of these podcasts, I probably like Series 9 even more than 10. I think there had been more of a consistency of quality than I'd necessarily given the show credit for at that point. I I would also say that, like, I want to do a transition here because... We've been saying what a great actor Peter Capaldi is, I think, quite rightly. I think, as I've said, he is a superb actor, at at least one of the best ever to take on the role. But I also, of course, the other big half of this series is Jenna Coleman as Clara, who I think is likewise one of the best actors ever to appear in the show. I think she is astonishingly good, uh, particularly in this series, although also in the in previous ones particularly as i mentioned we're because we're in the middle of the zygon two-parter i think her her two performances in that story are incredible really subtle without ever kind of while always keeping it obvious which clara is which and that kind of thing and like i have talked on this podcast before if you go back to our companions episode and i have talked about how big a fan i am of clara and how much my opinion on her has changed, actually. Because I think she is still a fairly divisive figure in uh, Doctor Who fandom. I, she came in at number two in my top five companions at, at that point. And I'm not going to talk too much about her because I've kind of said a lot of what I have to say. But 
I think while she's a really remarkable character in herself, in the kind of the role that she fits in the narrative as kind of in some ways a surrogate doctor, as becomes more and more evident in this series in particular, as somebody who kind of is almost a corrective to the doctor at times, but also to some extent somebody who encourages his worst instincts. It's a role that I don't ever expect to see a companion fill again because I think there's an extent to which she is almost a limit case. I think the the best summary of Clara's character that I've ever heard actually comes from, unsurprisingly I suppose, from Moffat himself, who said that his idea with writing Clara, and I think this was with regard to Series 7, uh, as well as 8 and 9, but his idea was to write somebody who was in some ways like almost perfectly formed to be a Doctor Who companion, the kind of person who would want to be, who would actively want to be a Doctor Who companion and who would want to go on terrifying adventures through space and time. And implicit in that is the notion that like, that's kind of a terrifying person to imagine. And that is really Clara in a nutshell, I think. Clara is again for me someone that I'm kind of in the process of like re-evaluating I suppose Mm. um I do still feel like Clara suffered for me from the way that she was introduced which I think makes more sense watching back having watched back um the Christmas specials for example Mm. and some of her earlier episodes I think once you know that she is as she's introduced in her first proper series, once you know that she is a normal person who's just got this extra job that she has to do of like splitting herself through time and space, I think it's a lot easier to watch and actually appreciate her who she is. But I think that the part of the problem with the way that she was introduced is that on a first watch, she's set up as such a mystery that you don't really you're not sure on what level to like try and connect with her or 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 what but i i think that i think that by the time that we get to this series and 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 i'm watching it again knowing that she's just a normal person enjoying the performance and stuff like jenna coleman is so good she is amazing mm. um just to echo what what kieran has said and i really like this arc or like this kind of issue of the fact that her and the Doctor have this kind of unhealthy dynamic, I'm really interested in that. And I also like how she's kind of framed as a baby Time Lord in the mm. beginning stories of this series, or at least a kind of um, a person with the kind of nascent abilities and affinities of a Time Lord, but without the kind of well with obviously without the lifespan but also without some of the kind of control that the doctor has had to learn and so i think some of the most interesting moments is when we see clara getting really excited about trying to find places where people are in danger and you can see the doctor kind of being the one for a change who's like oh should is that really a good thing to be thinking so i think that's really interesting I think one of the ways I, one of the things I've reappreciated about Clara rewatching the series is uh, how much of a bisexual icon she is. Mm. Because I think that at the time I had kind of, when I was first watching it, 
I was very suspicious of the the times when Clara seems to be professing interest in women and it's really weird that I should feel that way because I am also a bisexual woman but I think I'm so used to the, you get so used to the idea that like bisexual women are presented as kind of an erotic commodity for men that I think that some, there was a part of me at that time that whenever I saw one on screen I was like oh yeah but they're doing this wrong because they're just doing this to appeal to like and I don't know I think that's partly ham- I partly felt that way I think because I knew that the majority of writers on Doctor Who were men and still I think are the majority's never tipped no no and so, you know, you could say maybe, like, there should be a more diverse writing team to help with issues of representation, but I think that also what I was ignoring and what I've appreciated thinking about it this time is there's a lot of different, like, steps filtered towards what we see on the screen. And so you, I can't... That doesn't account for every every step. And so it's always more complicated. And, like, some of the things that really hammer home how much of an icon Clara is, is just Jenna Coleman's performance, like her remarks about a shielder in The Girl Who Died. It That's mostly just her slash the director, and so I think that my initial idea that, like, oh, male writers means that it can't be proper representation was very wrong-headed, really, and I'm glad that I get to re-appreciate Clara in all her marvelous multiplicity <laughs> well i mean that's appropriate isn't it hmm. yeah it's it's funny actually um this hadn't necessarily occurred to me before but like while i don't like to constantly be like ah this thing reminds me of this other thing from previously in the show um it is funny that like what you say about um clara being like as you say a baby time lord having that kind of nascent affinity is quite reminiscent of what was intended apparently for ace okay uh that she would go to the pardonian academy yeah and that she was being kind of i don't want to use the word groomed but that she was being kind of molded yeah trained (laughs) shall we say (laughs) by the the seventh doctor and um i also likewise the um bisexuality also ace Hmm. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, it's just a Time Lord thing, I guess. Apparently, yeah. It makes well, sense. that does make sense, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, but like, I it was one of the things that makes me really wary about my first reactions to Doctor Who episodes as broadcast now, because I know how much my opinions have changed and are mm. continuing to change about some of the series that I had really overlooked at the time, and so now. I'm whenever now with the most recent series that I also am not keen on I'm like oh but maybe this is just my false mind and in the future I'll look back and be like the witch finders was beautiful but mm. I don't know if I, I don't know if I will no I'll be surprised <laughs> put it that way so uh Jacob where are you, where are you sitting on where are you sitting in regards to Clara <laughs> Um, yeah, um, I, I, like I think my feelings are very like I think I have similar feelings to Beth in, in that I I was not massively I, I didn't feel a massive connection with her character when she came in. 
And again, I think that comes partly from watching the program chronologically because obviously like her main point about Clara in the beginning is that she she is the impossible girl, so she dies all these different times. It's like how can she be dying and then alive here? And that was kind of the mystery. But obviously, like in the context of Rory constantly dying, which was something that always got on my nerves in like season series five and six. I I was just like, oh, they're just doing this again. Like I was like, I'm not, I don't want this again. But then obviously it ended up being something kind of different. And I think watching Clara more in isolation, I haven't really gone back to series seven actually, but I've rewatched series eight, nine, and yeah, eight and nine quite a few times. So yeah, I think seeing them separated, I've I've kind of got more of an appreciation now. Jenna Coleman is like a, a very, very, very good actress, as we've said. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the Zygon episode, I was going to mention that as well. Like, the subtlety with which she, you know, pulls off playing the two characters is like really, really something. I personally prefer her with Capaldi to Smith, I think. Um, I think pretty, pretty much everyone does. Yeah. I was going to bring up this exact thing yeah. if you hadn't, Jacob. Because <laughs> I think, yeah, because you, you, obviously you have the whole impossible girl plot with Smith. And to be fair, she doesn't get very long with Smith. She only gets like half a season mm. and that first episode where she appears in Asylum of the Daleks. But like, it's it's complicated because one of my objections to her when she's brought in is that I think her character is very underdeveloped because she's used as a plot point now the complication with that of course is that her being the impossible girl and all this kind of thing is is part of what fuels her character you know going into series 8 and 9 so that whole relationship that she has with Capaldi that is what's really interesting where she's almost being like the Doctor, and they both push each other to extremes, and, mm. and they're kind of almost perfect for each other, and that's why Missy's brought them together. Like All of that stuff that's really interesting almost, I think, does come out of her her being that character and almost being like the Doctor and having this integral kind of part in his lives. So, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's kind of awkward because, on the one hand, I'm not really a fan of the way she was brought in, but on the other hand, I, I think there is a continuity to it. I, ju- I just think her and Capaldi work really well together. I like the way in which they both kind of shape and teach each other. And I think that point about Ace, which was something that I was going to say if you hadn't brought it up, um, I think is really important because I think it's it's also an interesting corrective on the way in which that was done. Because I, I love... Sylvester McCoy and Ace, as everyone knows. Like, <laughs> but like, I think one one problem with it is that it's very much the Doctor is manipulative and dark, which is which is interesting. But it also means that he's shaping her, and I don't think there's much of a kind of you know back and forth between the two where she's doing the same to him. It's very much a one sided mm. relationship, which from a gender point of view, obviously, I, I find kind of problematic, and I think. What's interesting about Clara, and if you read the Black Archive book on Hellbent, is really, really good on this. Uh, it's kind of like a feminist reading of, of Hellbent. I'll, I mean, I'll talk about it more when we get there, but like, essentially, I think, Carol, you've spoken about this before, like the idea of the, the companion is usually in some way diminished compared to the Doctor, and whereas with this, I think they're, they're put up as like 
or they try to put them up as like equals in some way mm. to the point that she ends up effectively going off with her own TARDIS, albeit mm. she's going to die. But you know, yeah, and and I think in that sense, that's kind of a much better way of tackling a lot of similar themes to what come up with the Seventh Doctor and Ace, where they're both involved in each other's development. And I love that that relationship is at the centre of this season because I think Hmm. this season is very clever at both at the level of form and content. But I I think fundamentally with this programme, where it stands or falls is on whether the characters are compelling and whether there's a you know a kind of emotional core to it and there really really is here mm-hmm. um so yeah i like clara in in, in a nutshell <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> i mean uh, actually i have a few points in regard to what you said but i think with regard to ace i think yeah there definitely is a kind of corrective thing going on but the other companion that we should mention in that regard is donna yeah it particularly with hellbent yeah yeah. Because there is a real sense that, and again, I will talk a lot more about this when we get to Hellbent, yeah. but there's a real sense of like looking back and being like, oh, actually, that wasn't great yeah. what happened to Donna, was the, it? The Black Archive book, like, sort of does that kind of reading, like, saying right. it's like cool. a, a response great. to Journey's End almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's good to hear. I need to read that one, actually. Another couple of things, though. Um, I think you're right that, um, as as I said, pretty much everyone does, that um, Clara is better with Capaldi than she is with Smith. I think a lot of that just, as well as um, her being well served by the scripts, um, comes down to chemistry. Because, mm. like, we tend to think of chemistry, I think, as between, like, romantic leads. Uh, not unreasonably, because obviously that's going to be quite important. But I think Peter Capaldi and Jenna Coleman have amazing chemistry. Mm. Just, like... It's partly just both of them being very good, but when they're on screen together, like, it's just always compelling. They don't have quite as many of the kind of big moral debates in this series as they do in Series 8. Every time they do have one of those kinds of moments, like, particularly the girl who dies, has a few, who died, has a few of them, for instance, uh, it's just always just electrifying to watch. But the other point, actually, is... Well, I think you're broadly right about the Impossible Girl arc. I do think it's worth going back and investigating some of those episodes because I think Mm. the focus is not where you think it is Mm. the first time around. And I think there's a a reasonable criticism that that arc should work the first time around and doesn't necessarily. But I'd particularly recommend going back to the Rings of Akaten. Mm. which is a very different episode than it initially appears to be. And I think, to my mind, that kind of puts the the lie to the notion that Clara is underdeveloped in Series 7. Because mm. I think a lot of what you need to know about her character is in that story. Yeah, And that is also a story that is basically about her and about her as a person, um, as opposed to the Doctor's idea of her. It's also about Clara having to step up and, like, be the Doctor because mm. the Doctor's mm. fucking around. Yeah. Mm. Which is interesting, mm. given, like, the way in which she is also being the Doctor in this series in a yeah. sort of different yeah. dynamic. Yeah. That, be- that being said, whilst Rings of Ekaten I have rewatched recently and does slap. I think it's still possible that she could be underdeveloped in other stories. She is. Oh, she absolutely is. I mean, I think that that's the standout is Mm. the problem. 
like the next few stories basically give her nothing. But it is very good. Yeah. But yeah, should we talk about this season a little bit? Um, yeah. Because I want to give my big old caveat, which is as Kieran mentioned at the beginning of the of the AE podcast, we our rewatching is slightly slow. And so some of these episodes I haven't rewatched yet and therefore have not seen since broadcast. So all of my opinions are going to be based on the ones that we have seen. So if I say anything that seems a bit like odd or not or is or is refuted later in the season, then I will come back on the next episode and refute myself. So don't worry about that. But it's been really cool to to rewatch it and one of the things that I want to kind of track as we talk about the episodes and as we move through the series rewatching it is the kind of idea of the role of stories and also the ways in which different relationships are prioritized and the ways in which hybridity is explored mm-hmm. so that's mm-hmm. some stuff that I'm <laughs> Jacob is dancing. You can't. <laughs> Unfortunately, this isn't a video, but um, just imagine something beautiful, and you'll be close. <laughs> but yeah, so that's kind of my broad comments because I don't really have anything as yet that I can say concretely about the series as a whole. But I've got the beginnings of those thoughts that I'm working through in our in my notes on the net, on the first two stories that we're going to talk about mm-hmm. today. Yeah, I think that makes that makes sense as a thing to bring up as well. Because actually, as as you were kind of alluding to, Jacob, I think this series has is very consistent on the level of kind of of its arc arcs, I should say. I think it's a it's a really strong series thematically, as well as um, just in terms of its kind of of its ongoing plot concerns. At least some of which I think we will get to in the course of the. Um, the first two two-parters that we're going to be looking at. It's going to feel weird talking about this series episode, like story by story, and it's also going to feel weird ranking the episodes. I know, yeah. I can say this much already, because there's so much continuity between the stories. I think we're yeah. going to have to like span a little bit. Yeah, I think that's that's fair enough, and that's, that's one of the things I like about this series as well. It's why it's been a real treat re-watching it kind of in order. It's worth saying, by the way, in terms of how we're splitting up the episodes, um, we're going, but we'll be going by what I think is a fairly kind of agreed order, which is uh, Magician's Apprentice, which is familiar, Under the Lake Before the Flood, and the, the Zygon two-parter, we will be treating as like single entities in the, the same way as something like, I don't know, uh, Empty Child Doctor Dances, for instance, as kind of consistent single statements. Whereas The Girl Who Died and The Woman Who Lived we'll be treating more as separate episodes, although they obviously are interrelated, uh, inescapably so. And likewise, Face the Raven, Heaven Sent and Hellbent, because they are such different episodes, I don't think you can justify mm-hmm. treating as like a three-parter, which I think does a disservice to a... While there are things to be said about them as a coherent unit, for sure, I think looking at them that way diminishes each of them as individual episodes. Yeah. So that's kind of how we will be approaching it. In terms of like familiarity, as Bethan was saying, we are kind of partway through our rewatch. I have rewatched every episode of this series except for Sleep No More within the last couple of years. 
uh, Sleep No More I don't think I've seen since broadcast and I have zero memory of it so that's going to be interesting <laughs> when we get to it so hopefully Sleep No More doesn't like completely undermine every point I'm making about the series I don't think it does. It but... turns out it's actually the most important episode of the entire season, and no one knew. Yeah, somehow, <laughs> somehow the, the Mark Gatiss ended up taking over the like plot central story for once. Oh, it's Mark Gatiss. It is. Yeah, I feel like the fine. moment we say it's Mark Gatiss, everyone knows what our assessment is going to be. <laughs> everyone knows the the word that is incoming, the adjective that is incoming. Yeah. Fine. But, but that's that's for next episode anyway, or next part. Before we move on, Jacob, do you have anything to say about the, the series as a whole? Uh, yes, kind of things I do. Many things. <laughs> I thought you might. Yeah, yeah. this is an extremely well-constructed season. Every part of it, both at the level of form and content, progresses its central themes. And obviously you have at the very heart of the story this relationship between... Peter Capaldi's Doctor and uh, Clara, and I think that that is that is a really compelling kind of emotional core to the whole thing. Central, like in terms of central themes, as you were saying, hybridity. That's why I did a little mm. dance as soon as mm. you said hybridity, <laughs> because the really interesting thing I think about this season, just like over looking at it overall, is the way in which that hybridity is threaded throughout the whole season in a really subtle and intelligent way i mean like mm. when you look at the structure of the season of the season it's as we kind of talked about it's mostly two parters and you get like obviously titles like under the lake before the flood hellbent heaven sent the girl who died the woman who lived so there's a lot mm. of binary oppositions within the mm. titles themselves mm. you know so like uh the lake and the flood hell and heaven the woman who died, etc. Hmm. But then, in terms of the theme of hybridity, all of those, or a lot of those binary oppositions get broken down. And in particular, they get broken down through the fact that, as we were saying, the stories are placed together as units in the sense that they're defined as a two-parter, but they're often very, very different within those two parts and hmm. also have separate existences as well. And then obviously you get mm. towards the end of the season and you get Sleep No More and just on its own in the middle and the, kind of the whole binary structure breaks down. Mm. Uh, and that is precisely what hybridity is. You know, it's, yeah, like the merging of, of binaries essentially. Like, So, yeah, all of that's really interesting. And I think in particular, if that theme of hybridity is important for one of the big themes of this season, which is the breakdown of distinctions between friend and enemy. Mm, um, yes, yes, yes. Which obviously comes through in the presence of Missy in the first episode. It's, mm. it's, it comes through in the character of me as well and the kind of mm. ambiguity about Aura Shielder. You know, the ambiguity about whether they're a villain or a, you know, a, a friend or whatever. And I think that theme not only echoes really well with or resonates really well with Capaldi's Doctor and the journey that he's going on, and this is the centerpiece of that journey. Where, you know, essentially he's he's not a he's not a good person, he's not a bad person, but he's someone who is trying to be good, you know. Which which I think is a is a very powerful idea mm. as well, because I think that goes for most people. I think that's you know, 
Yeah, and there's also the I think there's a lovely bookend structure to the to the whole season where you have again another binary opposition where you have again spoilers if you haven't seen this. I mean, it's probably too late now. You've heard loads anyway, <laughs> but but watch season first, or if you're not bothered, just carry on listening. But um, you have the Daleks at the start, and then you have the Time Lords at the end. So it's the two mm. enemies mm. on either side, and also the hybrid, which is kind of the mystery of this season. They think is uh, you know a cross between Daleks and Time Lords. Mm. Could it be? We don't know. We'll find out. <laughs> Um, <laughs> could it? I like how I'm keeping certain things quiet yeah. and revealing other things. Um, As yeah. if we are going to perform our own surprise reveal in like the third part of this. Um, and I think, as well, that friend enemy distinction. I'll, I'll talk about this more later on, particularly with the Zygon two parter and uh, Face the Raven, Heaven Sent Hell Bent relates very much to the political context in which this mm. programme came out and the dreadful government that we had in the UK and still have. It's just got even worse. And I think the final point I'm going to make, I don't want to go on too long, is about returning villains are used extremely effectively in this season to mm. progress those central themes. They're mm. not used indiscriminately and arbitrarily. They're used for a reason. And... That's what I always want to see. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, it's great. I love it. <laughs> I mean, I guess... And now, here again, we get into spoilers if somehow, somehow <laughs> you're listening to this and haven't, uh, haven't seen the season. But uh, the other theme that is, I think, present throughout this series and that I've kind of had my eye on is the delightful notion of death. Mm. Of death and how we deal with death, the and of, of proximity to death and like, can, how can death be avoided? Should it be avoided? To what lengths mm. is it right to go to, like circumvent the death of a loved one? That kind of thing, which obviously plays into Hellbent in a big way. It's the fuel of Hellbent. Uh, and obviously it's there in, in Heaven Sent as well. Heaven Sent is an episode about grief. Yeah. Very obviously. But, like, I think it kind of... What's interesting about this, this series, therefore, is it's kind of a series of conversations around this leading up to the moment where it suddenly becomes extremely evident that mm. this is what we've been about all along. In the same way that the concept of of hybridity, which you've both mentioned, is is tossed around and played with over the course of the series, right up to the point where it becomes evident that the hybrid is the thing that we've been tracking all along, mm. relatedly to the death conversation. Mm. I'm confused. I thought Heaven Sent was about old man punch hard, something about a bird. Yes. Okay. That is it. Good. I'm glad. Um. <laughs> The uh, the other thing relatedly to the, the the death thing, which I forgot about, is mm. another big central theme is is about the Doctor's power mm. and the yes, abuse yes, of yes. the Doctor's power and rules mm. and 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 whether you should and when you can break them. And again, I actually I will go into this probably towards the end of the season because that seems the most logical place to do it. But I think that is very much related to the 
political context of the series and it's related to the friend-enemy distinction and the hybridity mm. stuff. It all goes in together, but I'll, I'll go into that later. I guess one final point about the... Oh, well, I'm, I'm slightly anticipating what you're going to say, I think, Jacob, but it's one thing that I want to make a point of specifically with regard to Magician's Apprentice, which is familiar, is that with regard to the friend-enemy distinction, the breakdown of that, and specifically with regard to Missy, mm-hmm. this is a thread that continues into Series 10 yeah. in a big way. And Series 10 is kind of... A lot of Series 10 is dedicated to exploring that that relationship and that kind of that dynamic and to the the concept of redemption and again kind of like we've been saying about this a lot of things about this series i think it comes down in a really interesting way it comes down to i think what i think is a really strong and quite profound ethical stance Mm -hmm. in a way that like i think this series this this era of the show really is very very good at doing so uh almost an hour into recording (laughs) shall we get in on to talking about the episodes yes yes which punch hard into the wall of this hybrid yes (laughs) so yeah let's begin with um the magician's apprentice and the witch's familiar doctor my most sincere congratulations I'm sorry. This is wonderful news. Beyond all hope. I congratulate you. Why are you saying that? A man should have a race. A people and allegiance. A man should belong. Doctor. Believe me, please. I am uh, I'll start us off on this one. This is one of those stories, one of those two-parters that I think... Um, perhaps there's a ceiling on this, but so far there doesn't seem to be. It seems to improve every time I watch it. In that the first time I watched it, I was like, oh, yeah, it's alright, I suppose. Then I came back to watch it again, and I was like, oh, actually, no, there's, there's, there's stuff going on here. This is really interesting. And then the most recent time we watched it a few weeks ago at the time of recording, I thought, oh... This is really good. This is like a forgotten classic. I don't... It's by no means a perfect story. I think like a lot of two-parters throughout the series and like we see a few times in this series, uh, it's kind of the downfall of having a series based around two-parters. It's a little uneven. I think... uh, Certainly, I would say I prefer... I think Which is Familiar is a stronger story than... uh, Or stronger episode than Magician's Apprentice. I think it's one of those where the the payoff is kind of more interesting than the setup. Magician's Apprentice takes quite a while to get going, and while that's interesting in itself, it feels like the story is being pushed away while Colony Sarf tours the universe, meeting cameos. Gliding. In- yeah, including a Nick Cave cameo. Is it the weeping song he's playing in like one of the bars that he goes into yeah and and also um related to our last episode a return for the sisterhood of karn which is cool um, the sisterhood of karn i think actually being an interesting example of something that i want to talk about with regard to this two-part or if a minor example of it which is uh kind of related to something you were saying a couple of minutes ago jacob a, a use of the past 
that is productive, that is building mm-hmm. on what's been established in order to either to do something new or to bring out some potential that is uh, is untapped, uh, which I think is a lot of what this story is doing. And similarly um, with the, the Zygon two-parter, again, when we were talking about season 13, I mentioned that Terror of the Zygons now looks a bit lackluster in terms of what it's doing with the Zygons because that has been the the nature of these kind of shapeshifters and all the different things that you can do with that in a story uh, has been so thoroughly explored by the Zygon invasion slash inversion and to a lesser extent Day of the Doctor. What I think this story is doing is it's going back to, well, particularly and very obviously to Genesis of the Daleks and thinking, hang on, we're not finished here. I'm not the biggest fan of Davros as a rule. I think he works very well in Genesis of the Daleks and kind of okay in basically every story after that. With the exception of, like, while I'm not the biggest fan of it, Stolen Stolen Earth Journey's End and this story, I think it's hard to say he's absolutely fundamental to any other stories. Mm. Uh, But here, one of the reasons why I think he works is because it goes back and re-examines that beginning of his character and specifically goes back and re-examines and very on the nose is very on the nose about it to the point of actually replaying the clips re-examines those kind of ethical debates that he had with tom baker's doctor uh you know the the one about the virus that could destroy all of mankind and all of humanity whatever it is and the obviously the do i have the right speech the the famous one which is an interesting speech in itself because it's been so thoroughly undermined by so much of the Doctor Who that has come after it. Where the Doctor seems to categorically have decided, actually, yeah, I definitely have the right to blow up Scarrow and to destroy the Daleks in total over and over again. But of course, what's interesting about that speech isn't, it's is that it's not about should I destroy the Daleks. It's should I meddle in time? And the, I think that plays into uh, the kind of things we're talking about, the kind of the the Doctor's own rules and how far they will go and that kind of thing. So already that kind of stuff is being set up. We also just have this notion of, you know, the, the Davros as kind of a, a, a kind of an intellectual adversary, primarily for the Doctor, and hence a foil for the Doctor to set up ethical stances it's kind of interesting actually in hindsight that davros repeatedly sort of admonishes the doctor for compassion and suggests that that's going to be that's his weakness that's going to be uh, his undoing and in fact it is exactly what leads to the death of the 12th doctor but he uses that as kind of a, a moral stance in itself at that point and so i think all of that is really good and it's a it's a really interesting use of the past. It's really productive. It's kind of... It's it's doing a thing that I think Doctor Who is uniquely positioned to do where it uses its history to do a kind of story that would not be possible without the kind of the weight of who Davros is as a character and that kind of thing. And it's interesting, actually, this is a side note, but it's a story that I know I've heard some fans, even people who generally like it, express reservations about on a kind of... On the on the basis of the old phantom bugbear of the Doctor Who fan, which is the casual viewer, 
you know, what will the casual viewer make of this? Will they just be turned off by all of this uh, discussion of Davros and the history of the character and that kind of thing? A, I don't think that's actually a problem in this story because I think I think this story gives you as much introduction to who Davros is as the Stolen Earth does. And that story works perfectly fine in that regard. I mean, it literally shows you all of the history between Davros and the Doctor, just in case you weren't aware. But B, I also think that's... The reason I refer to that as kind of a phantom book there is I think it's a lot less of a con- an actual concern than, certainly when done well, than fans seem to think it is. Just because I think a non-fan or like a casual viewer understands what mythic weight is without having to know the kind of the intricacies of it. Mm-hmm. You can understand that this is an important dynamic that between the Doctor and Davros without having to see Genesis of Daleks and Destiny of the Daleks and Resurrection of the Daleks and everything else of the Daleks. I mean, and apart from anything else, the other thing is also that I think Davros is just a better known character than fans necessarily give him credit for. I mean, the example I like to cite is the fact that in series one of Fresh Meat, the horrible posh boy JP uses Davros as a horrible posh boy nickname for someone called Dave. So there's a degree of to which Davros as a character has is in the cultural consciousness in that regard, even for people who haven't necessarily seen much Doctor Who. The other thing that I want to talk about, though, and I'll try to keep this relatively brief uh, with regard to this story, is I think it does something really interesting with the Daleks. And it gives a kind of, in a way, a kind of weight to the Daleks that you rarely see, particularly in the new series. I think something like Party of the Ways comes close, but in that it returns them, I mean, very broadly, it returns them to that the original notion of their being Nazis. Because mm. there's something, the Daleks are actually a little different here than we're used to them. Because we were used to them as just kind of hate-filled you know, uh, want to kill everything. But here, they're not just that. They're sadistic. They're predatory. There's that bit where they're waiting for... Missy says that they're waiting for her and Clara to run so that they can shoot them. So that they... As if they're, like, feeding off the fear that they cause. And then later on, uh, in Which is Familiar, we have the notion that they are literally powered by emotion. That the way that Clara can shoot the gun is with emotion. And I think the reason why, part of the reason why I think this is interesting, apart from just being kind of a fun psychological profile of horrible, hate-filled people, is the context. So this is airing in like the second half of 2015. So this is the point at which our dear friends, the Diet Nazis, the alt-right, have really kind of begun to make themselves known. This is the year after Gamergate, uh, or after it first took off anyway. I mean, it kind of spanned a long period of time. And this is the point where these sorts of radicalized, primarily young men are increasingly becoming very obviously a concern. And so I think, consciously or otherwise, this story is almost replying to that by showing us what this looks like. And not only that, but like, I mean, there's the notion of there's, there's Davros's thing about like a man should have a race. Uh, so there's this kind of, there's this, as well as like the, the shouty shooty lads, there's the intellectual version, or maybe intellectual in inverted commas, of this kind of right wing internet 
phenomenon, given voice in that regard. But what's interesting then as well, in terms of how the story goes, is that this is also a story that just has no time for this kind of nonsense. This is a story that ends with the Nazis being drowned in their own shit. There's something deeply beautiful about that. There's also the notion in that that they are on some level ignoring history and that that is what is destroying them, which I think has some resonances as well. There's also the fact that, like, one of the chief Nazis is a bunch of snakes, which is somehow just kind of aesthetically pleasing. Why is he... He's not a Dalek, though. No, I think he's just like, he works for Davros. He's just mm. like, they just have a bunch of snakes around. It, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it is an odd, yeah, I have to admit, it is an odd one, though, isn't it? Because they're like yeah. racial yeah, purists, yeah. so they should just want to mm. kill the snake guy, really. But, yeah. but I think he, the there's a sense in which Davros's patronage kind of keeps mm. him slightly apart. Yeah. And I guess maybe they, they want to be, like, sneaky. Mm. They can't have all of them be that one fighter lad with the di- with the yeah. eye stalk or whatever they have to have a sneaky snake boy to go around mm. on his heelys and do all of their like <laughs> sneaking yeah he's completely he's very inconspicuous <laughs> <laughs> i mean yeah i think that's the gist of what i have to say um bethan what do you uh have so for us? what i want to say is first of all uh, i love missy and that's probably mm. the most important thing that i have in my notes Mm -hmm. um but i do like how in this two-parter we get the notion of the master as the doctor's oldest friend Mm. which i really like i think it's really interesting the idea that that could be how the doctor and the master see each other and relate to each other even Mm. after all the times that like the masters tried to kill them. <laughs> but I also find it very interesting on the one of the, the moments of this episode, that I, this, this, this story that I really wanted to talk about, was the very opening of Witch is Familiar, where Missy tells the story about the Doctor escaping from somewhere. Mm. Because, firstly, it shows like the nature of their bond, where she says they're all the same to me, implying that like her and the Doctor kind of have a some kind of bond that goes beyond different regenerations and stuff Mm. but also because that she resolves that by being like so i'll pick the eyebrows it she's setting herself up explicitly as an unreliable narrator Mm. so we have no idea if that story is actually true or if she's just using Mm. that as a means by which to explain something to clara and so i what i really like is the idea that obviously we know that the character of the master is kind of duplicitous in a lot of ways, but it shows that like behind the sort of more kooky aspects of Missy's character, particularly she's kind of, she's choosing what to tell and how to tell it to Mm. everyone and particularly Mm. to Clara, which means that when there is the conversation about the confession dial and it's like, Oh, it's to be delivered to, his oldest friend and then Clara goes or is like his best friend and Clara goes to take it and Missy's like no 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 like it's not actually ever quite clear if the doctor sees things that way or if it's just that Missy does and I really like that but it's Mm. also part of like something that I want to sort of track in these first couple of stories where the relationship between the doctor and Clara is contrasted 
with other types of relationships. So we've got this like friendship possibly between the Doctor and Missy that we have in this story, but we also have the relationship of Davros with the Daleks because the way that in The Magician's Apprentice the Doctor sort of describes the creation of the Daleks is that Davros saw the solution to the war that his people were in as making them into a mutant in a tank that would never ever stop which is so interesting when you think about that in comparison to what happens to Ashilda in The Girl Who Died mm. so it's this thing of like is the most appropriate way to express your love for a person or for a people to preserve them no matter what the cost and what should that preservation look like because Davros has the kind of ultimately twisted version of it where the only thing that matters is that it keeps existing nothing else matters he just wants his Daleks to keep to keep on going Mm. but then there's the idea that we have later on that maybe like the well-meaning version of that also isn't great and there's also something in the fact that like the doctor is on a tank when he like rolls into mm, yeah i think it's castel Koch, but like the medieval castle mm. so i don't really know i assume that maybe that's a like dig at the guy that he maybe knows is a secret dalek headstock boy but it's just kind of interesting as well mm. but yeah so i guess that's kind of the main things that I had to say about this. I think anything else I have, I could sort of check along the way, but um, I think it's really interesting and really good to see Missy. I think Michelle Gomez is, I'm doing air kisses, exquisite. Mm. And so, yeah, oh, and I also, it's like the idea that this like bond that the Doctor and Clara have is disruptive in its hybridity mm. between like sort of peoples to Davros's ideas. Jacob's dancing again to Devros's ideas about mm. what a sort of appropriate bond is and so therefore it's interesting that the kind of idea that the Doctor and Missy might be like these great old friends is not is perhaps not as disruptive as the Doctor and Clara being even though like god the the Master and the Doctor have a uh, troubled past <laughs> but yeah it's mm. I, I don't know I just thought that was interesting as well yeah, for sure. And actually, like, I mean, a couple of things picking up on that to do with the Dr. Clara relationship in this. The first is that I think the other thing that's interesting about the the opening to Which is Familiar, where Missy is telling the story, is it's not only the way that Missy is telling the story, but it's the fact it's how it's where Clara proves herself able, not admittedly for the first time, but very directly to be able to think like the Doctor. Which I think is, is it's an underplayed moment, but a really interesting one. You know, we've seen her kind of act as the Doctor before, but this really proves that even in kind of a hypothetical scenario, she's taken in enough of that that she can kind of like, oh, I see exactly what the Doctor would do in this scenario. And I mean, this is the, I think, probably the clearest opening to the uh, uh, the notion that there is something fundamentally unhealthy or even destructive in... The Doctor and Clara's relationship. Because in the... in Again, in Which is Familiar, we see the Doctor, like, steal Davros's wheelchair, which is kind of a queasy thing in itself. Like, it's a bit of an odd thing to see him do, mm-hmm. even to Davros. While there is a reason, like a, like a plot reason for it, it still 
feels, I think, deliberately a bit, ooh, I don't know about that. And also wave a, a Dalek gun around while he's at it. There's a sense in which, like, for all that we're on his side, we're like, oh, should he be doing this? There's a sense in which he, there's almost, if not a limit case, at least a sense that the Doctor has been pushed beyond what we might be necessarily comfortable with seeing from the character. I guess we kind of have to believe that he would go that far so that the reveal at the end, which shows how the re- how the interaction between young Davros and the Doctor actually played out, I guess we have to kind of believe that he would go far that far mm. as to kill the little boy so that at the end it can be somewhat of a surprise mm. that he doesn't. But also, I did wonder, like, if Davros is only half a lad, then how does the Doctor fit in the chair? Because, like, we see Davros yeah. on the floor, and he hasn't got any legs. That is a very good so question. So why would he have leg room in his, in his, in his Daleks? Anyway, <laughs> like, I know why practically the prop they use for Davros has yes. room. Yes. <laughs> I suppose that's the main thing. It's, yeah. Hmm. I have also, I can't believe this, but I've only just realized that the part of the reason for the, like, child Davros bit is that... If there was a child... Yes, yeah. yes, exactly that. <laughs> I can't believe I just put that together. But yes, anyway, um, Jacob, take um, it away. Yeah, I, I really like this. This is one of the best season openers, probably, I would say. I mean, again, I agree, it's not perfect. Like, I'm not... I'm not a huge fan of like the plane stopping in the sky and the kind of Russell T Davies esque montage of different newscasters, you know, all over the world like that. I'm never a fan of that. But um, yeah, I really like this episode. I really like Missy because Michelle Gomez is like really, really good. I think for me, what's really important about this one is it sets up the the central themes of the the friend enemy distinction the the collapse of the friend enemy distinction hybridity mm. very mm. effectively you know obviously you have as we've kind of been saying you have the the bit at the start where the the little boy who's stuck in the the field of hand mines is mm. uh, <laughs> is uh, is davros and the doctor leaves him and then the shame that the doctor feels for that and yeah, I mean, obviously that's immediately setting up the friend-enemy distinction because it's like the Doctor the doctor leaves him because he's his enemy. It's also questioning the Doctor's power as well, the fact that the Doctor mm. has the power to make that decision and, as you said, it calls back to Genesis of the Daleks. And then at the conclusion of the second part, we obviously get uh, that distinction is deconstructed when the Doctor says friends, enemies... I don't think any of that matters. And, of course, the important thing is that his showing mercy to the young Davros is precisely what prevents him from killing Clara because the mm. Dalek says mercy and he says, you you know, that shouldn't be in your vocabulary banks. How did that get there? Yeah, so all that's great. I also think, like, imagery-wise, there's a couple of really interesting moments. So, like, the bit where he's in Davros's chair is obviously friend-enemy because he's mm. in his enemy's chair. Even more obviously than that, there's the moment where Clara is in the Dalek. So it's the f- and, and Missy says, this is why I gave her to you, to see the friend inside the enemy, the enemy inside the friend. 
yeah, so all that stuff is great. I think what's interesting as well is in relation to what you were saying, Kieran, about this the rise of the alt right in uh, in this period. Because I think what's really good about this episode is, as you were saying, it doesn't the history that it invokes and its use of the Daleks is not arbitrary because the Daleks are like Nazis, and obviously you know, the Nazis and the Daleks don't want anyone who is different to them. They want to exterminate anyone who is different to them, which gets underlined when Missy says to the Supreme Dalek, she says, he says, you're an enemy of the Daleks. And she says, yes, but anyone who isn't a Dalek is an enemy of the Daleks. So that was an easy guess, which is a great line. Mm. But it's also, you know, again, it's that idea of they they can't stand difference. They have very clear Mm. distinctions between who are their allies and who aren't, essentially anyone who isn't them. And I think, to to broaden the point about the, the contemporary alt-right a bit, um, I mean, the alt-right is it, it's a complicated term because it refers very broadly to this set of right-wing movements that have been emerging for a much longer time than people think, but obviously primarily they, they come to prominence kind of in this period now, sort of 20, the 2010s, 2014, 2015 in particular, and obviously the alt-right is kind of, it's a, it been a very elastic term because it's been used to refer to more national populist movements like, you know, UKIP or the Brexit Party. It's also been used to refer to Donald Trump and it even goes out to the kind of white supremacist neo-Nazi movements that have been kind of developing or growing online in particular. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think they're not all the same thing they're not all the same, there are distinctions between them, but they are all part of the same movement and cultural moment, uh, and they're being driven by similar factors. Now, what I think is interesting about the friend-enemy distinction is it goes right to the heart of a lot of the ideologies that are, uh, that are you know, kind of driving these movements, because the friend-enemy distinction comes from Carl Schmidt, who is dreadful and was a Nazi and his political theory is entirely based on the idea of a distinction between friend and enemy. What's interesting is there's a link between these different movements that are all interrelated because Chantal Mouffe and Ernesto Leclau who theorise you know, theorise populism from a left perspective, they base their theory of populism on a friend-enemy distinction. So, you know, the idea is that you discursively construct a distinction between say the people and the elite obviously national national populists right and you know people who are broadly on the right although i think left right distinctions are very complicated in this case tend to use that in a xenophobic and a racist way to basically exclude particular people and so i think what's very interesting about this is i think with with the clown move they they basically say move in particular that the friend-enemy distinction is something that is almost inherent in a lot of politics for them Uh, and I think there is a point to be made there bearing in mind they're writing against a period of consensus uh, Mm. like in terms of new labor and things like that and I think that is true I think what is good about the these episodes though and this season as a whole is they show what can happen when that is taken in particular directions i.e you can end up in the kind of supremacist thing that we have with the Daleks. And so I think starting with that enemy is very important and plays into a lot of 
what you were talking about in terms of the context. I also think it's really interesting in terms of the moral interrogation of an ethical interrogation of the doctor and his behavior and his power because obviously mm. the Daleks are very much the enemy that will push him to to go beyond his own rules which we've already mm. seen you know he does it in the time war obviously mm. that then gets uh, corrected in day of the doctor somewhat he will then replay that genocide or nearly replays that genocide in Parting of the Ways Bad Wolf when he constructs the um, uh, the Delta Wave. Uh, but he mm. doesn't do it, obviously. Mm. But um, it's still there. And every time the Daleks appear, you know, he is a lot of times like filled with, with rage and, and, you know, will go very far. I mean, he does it... Dalek is the other example where he has the gun and Rose kind of says, what are you turning into? Mm. You know, because he's going to mm. shoot the Dalek even though mm. the Dalek is changing. Yeah, so I think it's a very intelligent story and it sets off the central themes of this series really, really well. I also think it's a very intelligently plotted story because that solution, you know, as you were saying, where <laughs> the darks are drowned in their own like sewage, it is set up much much earlier on in quite a subtle mm, way mm. when they're down in the mm. um in like the I don't know, like the sewers I guess. Mm. And obviously they all get, you know, kind of revived by the regeneration energy. But I think what's beautiful about that as well, if you can call sewage beautiful, is that um I do <laughs> is that um it's the Daleks own supremacy being their downfall. Because the Daleks mm. there down there are discarded and they've been left because they're you know, they, they don't fit. They're not they're not strong enough, they've become old and that is the that is the outcome of an ideology of supremacism, is that particular people are left behind and excluded, and it is that exclusion that in the end is what destroys them. Yeah, so that's that's great as well. Fits beautifully with the overall season arc. And the story itself, and I should say, as a last point, I love the the inter. I know it ends up just being kind of a ploy, but I love the interaction between Capaldi's Doctor and Davros, and Julian Pleach, who plays Davros, does such a good job because, mm, I, like, mm, to mm. put emotion into into that, which he has to to try and make it, you know, kind of convincing. Because the first time I watched it, even I was like. It's got to be a ploy. It's got to be a ploy, but maybe it's not. Maybe he really does actually, mm. you know. Maybe he really does actually regret some of this stuff. And yeah, look, I think to be able to do that behind all that makeup was really good. And well, I think getting him to kind of open his eyes was like strategically a very good way of doing that as well, of mm. kind of conveying that emotion. But yeah, really good season opener. Mm. Almost feels more like a finale at times. Than, than a season opener but yeah very good yeah i think the um sometimes a lot of the strength of, of doctor who is when you could you just put the doctor in a room with an interesting character maybe an interesting villain and like just kind of let them go at it so to speak uh, i mean that's that's quite often when the master's most satisfying scenes are for instance mm. when it's just like roger delgado and john pertwee like just sat in a room together but here of course as well as just being 
kind of satisfying drama and as you say kind of working on this this really interesting level where like again there is this uncertainty about whether or not it's a ploy but also there's a sense in which you're simultaneously ahead of and behind the drama mm. for instance when the when Davros kind of enacts the thing he has clearly been building to and gets the doctor to give him the regeneration energy obviously as an audience member you're like this is clearly a trap what are you doing which the doctor already knows and while i think that kind of um ah i actually already subverted your trap sort of storytelling can get very annoying i think it does work here Mm. partly because of the that reversal is just very satisfying but also i think what's key about it is it doesn't devalue the conversation that davros and the doctor have been having for the whole story because you still are left with this notion of like how much of it was a ploy how much of what he said did davros actually mean because there's there's bits of it that seem to be completely genuine like Mm. i mentioned the bit about like uh where he says he's sincerely glad for the doctor getting gallifrey back because it means that he has he has his race back which is again kind of horrifying but Mm. also for that reason feels completely sincere and like there's nothing really to ever to suggest that it isn't which is again just a a really it's it's one bit among many but i think it's a really lovely bit of writing i suppose part of the reason why the doctor defeating the master's ploy works is because he does it by kind of taking him at his word yeah davros not the master sorry davros plan he does it by taking him at his word like yeah he does he still does the compassionate thing Mm. and he consistently does the compassionate thing Mm. with like young davros as well it's like the whole thing where i think i think davros asks him why he he says something about like why he came and the doctor says i came because you're sick and you asked Mm. and so it's just always about him being there and still trying to like Yes, so I think that's why it why it doesn't feel like a, oh, I defeated your trap with my second ultimate superior trap. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's like, he gets around it, and he gets around the, the trap of Clara being stuck in the Dalek, but he does that by just kind of taking things situation by situation, even if he has mm. like an idea of what's going on beyond that as well. Yeah, yeah, and as you say, it's the, the sense that his principles his morality is is consistent Mm. and is in operation throughout it's it's one of the reasons why i think for all that the 12th doctor is one of the more ethically complicated doctors i think it's it's what ultimately makes him feel like like a real hero when he is being one uh, as here and as i mean the ultimate expression in the doctor falls because it is this this ethical stance that we've seen being worked out, but also that is like that is entirely consistent, and that is something he is willing to stand for and fall for. Anything else that we have to say about this? No, I think, I think so. We have said plenty. Okay, so I guess it's time now to um, to dive under the lake. And go before the flood. That doesn't work so well. Uh, Jacob's doing excellent swimming motions, though. That's good. <laughs> Especially for someone who I believe can't swim. Yeah. 
Yeah, <laughs> it's a really physical performance. Yeah, and it's, like, it's 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 really it's really making me it. regret that this is a purely audio medium. <laughs> Maybe we should like live stream a re- recording at some point. Anyway, under the lake before the flood. So there's this man. He has a time machine. Up and down history he goes, zip 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 zip, getting into scrapes. Another thing he has is a passion for the works of Ludwig van Beethoven. And one day he thinks, what's the point of having a time machine if you don't get to meet your heroes? So, off he goes to 18th century Germany. But he can't find Beethoven anywhere. No one's heard of him. Not even his family have any idea who the time traveler is talking about. Beethoven literally doesn't exist. This didn't happen, by the way. I've met Beethoven. Nice chap. Very intense. Loved an arm wrestle. No, this is called the bootstrap paradox. Google it. The time traveler panics. He can't bear the thought of a world without the music of Beethoven. Luckily, he brought all of his Beethoven sheet music for Ludwig to sign. So he copies out all the concertos and the symphonies and he gets them published. He becomes Beethoven. And history continues with barely a feather ruffled. Bethan, would you like to start us out on this one? Absolutely, I can try. So, I was really surprised by this one because I sort of vaguely remembered the concept when we saw the preview uh, for this story, but I didn't really remember too much about the actual how things played out and it, I think it's really good. I mean, it's really good in a series of incredibly good episodes, so mm. I suppose that might be why it doesn't like get talked about or was as present in my mind quite as much. But I think the concept is really cool and and it's like quite an interesting idea of having the ghosts and stuff. It's a classic sort of gothic thing. Mm. And what it really is is it's kind of a um I think here on you even said this before we started watching it. It's kind of a third doctor kind of story. Did you say it, something like that? I think I said it was like a base under siege. Like a base under siege. So I yeah. was thinking of the third doctor because of base under siege. But basically, my concept is that it's a bit like there's something going on with it being a response to the idea of like the the third doctor slash fourth doctor unit story, and that's partly because the village that they are the submerged village was flooded in 1980 which Mm. seems not accidental as kind of like almost the end of the fourth doctor's tenure there Mm. oh also the year from uh, pyramids of mars come to think of um but then also but what's interesting about it is it's a kind of like if we think of it through the lens of like a unit story where we have the military there and also the sort of business interests of mm. um, Vector Petroleum, they mm. are, I think. Something like that, um, yeah. Represented by shady business Pritchard boy. <laughs> the character that would be the most closest to the Brigadier, the Brig, who we all love, like gets killed immediately, is in the mm. highest ranking military officer there. And so I feel like because of something, that kind of thing makes me think that maybe it's looking at those kinds of stories but through the lens of like who can and cannot die because the whole kind of 
turning point of the story is this idea of the Doctor not being able to allow the possibility that Clara specifically Mm. will die, which is the kind of thing that I was talking about in our most recent classic series that we looked at with the idea of like, oh, well, it's silly because obviously the Doctor and Sarah Jane aren't going to get killed, so they have to think of all these convoluted reasons. And in this, it's kind of precisely about that kind of that story convention and what underlies it the fact that the like is it that the doctor and clara just see everybody else as kind of disposable to the point where a character that we would normally expect to be preserved this brigadier analog is like immediately dispatched and i think that this can be seen to like provoke some moral actions that are somewhat dubious in both the doctor and clara in clara there's this thing of like um when she sends Lun off to get the phone, she is putting his own safety at risk, but she is also saying that her need is greater, like, surmounts the kind of humanity of Cass Mm. because she is depriving Cass of her means of communication Mm -hmm. and is basically saying, like, no, me having this phone is more important than your ability to express how you are feeling and to like have a role on the base. Um, and communication is obviously a really important thing in the story with the marks and the ship and stuff. Mm. And so I think that the, pa- the fact that Clara is not only endangering somebody, but also depriving somebody else of their ability to communicate is really quite a morally dubious thing to be doing in the name of ensuring the doctor's safety. And then also there's the thing with the doctor with the... Um, the weird bits in before in before the flood where the doctor kind of addresses the viewer to talk about Beethoven's fifth mm. and what I was what I've kind of taken from that because I was thinking about that quite a lot because it was quite a weird thing to do to like explain the power the idea of the paradox to the viewer in that way and what I kind of take from it is that the reason why his choice of putting Clara next in that list does not like break the laws of time travel or whatever is because it is so deeply coded into the Doctor at this point that he is always putting Clara first that it doesn't matter, there doesn't need to be a reason she would just be first in the list. Obviously this doesn't account for why the rest of the names are in the same order, but this is just what I took away from the fact that it was Clara. Like, How mm. did he know to put Clara next in the list? He didn't, but he just puts Clara first all the time anyway. And we again see the Doctor kind of... And that that relationship's kind of contrasted with a different kind of relationship again with um, O'Donnell and... Well, Bennett's, like, feelings for O'Donnell. Mm. And then he's kind of literally like, oh, so you and Clara... So Clara's, Clara's important, but my, like, friend and colleague is not important. So what's up with that and Mm. he's like actually called out on it which i think is kind of where i see this logic of the of a more typical like or more classic doctor who story being picked at a bit Mm. where it's Mm. like Mm. oh so there's these disposable unit lads that we can like throw at the whatever it is but why are certain people exempt from that danger and yeah, so that's kind of, I guess, a rough sketch of what I have to say. Also, the fact that it's a Cold War town, like like a Cold War reconstruction base, the village, is again that kind of the Cold War preoccupations of like 70s 
mm. in specific Doctor Who. Mm. It's mm. so they're kind of revisiting the like a very and a very explicit portrayal of the what is in the background of all of those kinds of stories. But I also love that set. Oh my god. But yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess also the fact that it's a reconstruction is almost like a reflection of what the story is doing in some ways. Mm. But that's like very by the by. It felt weird going first there because I have no idea what either of you are going to say <laughs> about it. But that's just what I took away from 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 the thing. I have some stuff to say about like Cass in specific as well. But I think I'll maybe mm. touch on that afterwards. Yeah, sure, sure. Jacob, what do you uh, what do you think of it? Oh, well, I absolutely love this episode i Ooh. it's one of my favorite peter capaldi episodes oh uh, wow um there are others that are higher up because there's quite a few good ones um but yeah it's so well plotted you know like the whole bootstrap paradox thing the framing in the second episode i love you know at the start and the end kind of explaining it but i i think for me the thing with this episode as well is that it's it's like what I was saying earlier about the program stands or falls on, you know, character and emotion, really. And the thing is that, yes, this has lots of, you know, intelligent kind of narrative devices and stuff, and it has clever plotting. But really, I think what's good about this as well is that all the characters who appear in this episode, the additional characters who aren't Clara and the Doctor, are well drawn and you know we know who they are and what their motivations are mm. and how they kind of feel about each other and how mm. they interact and all of that works really well and at the same time once again like i said with the previous episode it's a story that is really cleverly and subtly developing the themes that run throughout the season in this mm. case you have obviously the question of the doctor's power and rules and rule breaking again like we were saying about like the idea that who does he choose to save and on what basis he's willing to break the rules to try and save clara and that obviously gets interrogated but also it's a story that is very much about exhaustion and the prolongation of life and immortality which is exactly what you were saying earlier Kieran. like and obviously relates to what will happen later on with, with Clara, particularly in Face the Raven and Hellbent. So, I mean, for example, you have... There's the, there's the characters, there's the Tivolian and there's the Fisher King. And both of them are about, you know, really survival uh, mm. in two different mm. ways. On the one hand, you have the Tivolian who survives through, you know, kind of cowardice, really, and submission. And you have the Fisher King who survives through... Uh, conquest but again it's another binary that gets dissolved because the doctor you know they're, they're two opposites domination and then this kind of cowardice but they're the doctor says you know they're what they have in common is that they're both doing it to survive and the other interesting thing is of course the fisher king not only does the fish king in the story he's supposed to be dead in the you know in the ship and then comes back to life and is almost you know prolonging his life through these people that he's using as transmitters these ghosts but also the name the fisher king itself has you know Mm. these kind of connotations of you know prolongation of life and immortality because i mean it's from my understanding of it legends of the fisher king there's various ones but tends to be about 
immortality but also exhaustion. Uh, so sometimes it's like a Holy Grail legend where he's protecting the Holy Grail or the Holy Grail is keeping the Fisher King alive. There's also a lot of times where ex- exhaustion in relation to the Fisher King is portrayed portrayed in terms of the Fisher King being infertile or it's implied that he's infertile. That's something that like Elliot does, I think, in The Wasteland um, when he mentions the Fisher King. So, yeah, all of that is really interesting. But then I think, crucially, what the story does is... It's also a story that's very much about energy because it's obviously about the this petroleum that's you know that they're they're there to exploit. It's set within a nuclear reactor. I mean, it's kind of it's all there, and so I guess there's another sense of exhaustion for me, which is the resources that we're using, this exploitation of oil that's actually destroying the planet. That in and of itself is a kind of exhaustion. You know, not only will the oil be exhausted, but also it's not something that is sustainable. But then I think what was interesting, you spoke about the um, the Cold War setting. I think the Cold War setting also plays into that because, you know, it's 1980. We're getting, not that people in 1980 would realise this, but we are getting towards the end of the Cold War, actually, by that point. And I think what's really interesting about having kind of these, this you know, base that's populated with, with ghosts and the Fisher King being sort of trying to get his armada to, to come to the planet through these ghosts transmitting this signal is that, in and, and you know, relating that to this kind of military base with a Soviet aesthetic is that I also think this is a story about the end of history. And when I talk about the end of history, I mean Francis uh, Fukuyama's thing that he spoke about the collapse of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War and how when he said that he referred to it as the end of history and by the end of history he didn't mean history was going to stop. What he meant was we have reached kind of the end point of human development and that liberal democracy will be the last political form. Obviously that looks extremely dated now and I think he's gone back mm. since and said that doesn't really mm. work. But yeah, I think that sense of exhaustion, particularly when you look at the stuff related to the oil and and the Pritchard, who's kind of sees everything in commodity terms. You know, when he hears about the mm. battery, he wants to commodify it. He thinks it's very valuable. You know, he wants to get the oil and all the rest of it. I think there's almost an idea that in being haunted by what has happened at this base in the in the 80s, it almost turns on its head the idea of the end of history because really it's as though having all these images of exhaustion in the story, it's as though, rather than saying, you know, we're we're triumphant over communism, capitalism is triumphant, what it actually is, really, is, no, capitalism is exhausted. And this is just, Mm. like the Fisher King, this is just a prolongation of life. Um, You know, lots lots of Marxist scholars talk about it in that way. I mean, like, someone like David Harvey would say that neoliberalism which is kind of the contemporary phase of capitalism is crisis you know lots of others would talk about it as terminal crisis i think fisher's referred to kind of zombie capitalism like there's this idea that the contemporary phase of our economic system is really a kind of overstretching and a continuation of life beyond where it should be and i think there's definitely something of that in this story with the imagery that it uses and the themes that it, it touches upon. But yeah, it's 
it's great i love it i love what it's doing i also think there's that idea of exhaustion is also reflected both in the structure of the episode because obviously it's a loop you know so it's the mm. idea that there's they there's no going forward in time there's only going back once the doctor goes back he's completely constrained in what he can do and has to basically just use he just uses what's there and his you know the bootstrap paradox of knowing that the the ghost has said these names to then resolve the plot but then also i think the base under siege format is another example of that kind of exhaustion because it's like we're use reusing this old material Mm-hmm. Um, and this this old kind of form from from the classic series, uh, particularly kind of the Patrick Troughton era, I guess. But yeah, really intelligent, really well thought out, complex. Just as like a kind of a bit of complete speculation, I've sometimes wondered. I don't know if this is true. I've sometimes wondered if this was like Toby Whithouse's play for head writer. Oh, interesting. Um just just because it's it's like easily his best script that he's produced, I think. Um yeah, and like it agree. does you know, in the same way that like Blink was clearly Moffat's play for, for head writer, I would say. But I don't know, that's just a bit of a speculation. Because I know he was suggested, so He was definitely yeah, his name was thrown around a lot. I think it, basically his name and Chibnall's were both kind of thrown around a lot. Yeah. And yeah. Obviously for one reason or another it swung Chibnall's way. So yeah, that's a good thought actually, because does he write for... Oh, he does write series. He writes Live the Land for Series 10. Mm, mm. I think Chibnall... I'm not sure if Chibnall was already established as the successor at this point. Because I know he be definitely... This would be 2015, so it'd be quite a while ago. I'd have to yeah, look it up. He definitely was by kind of close to the time... Probably close to the time Series 9 was airing. Because mm. um, this is inter- going to be an interesting thing to keep in mind, but Moffat didn't originally intend to stay on for Series 10. Yeah. He like he was planning on handing over, so Hellbed wouldn't have been his last episode, but it would have been like towards the end, uh, which I think makes sense because you can. Well, as much as I love series ten, Hellbent does have the feeling of like this is all I have to say, in a way. But yeah, uh, basically Chipmore wasn't ready to take over, and so he had to write a whole other series, and then an extra Christmas special for a regeneration episode. Just yeah, kind wasn't of, wasn't the Chris the Christmas episode wasn't it? They didn't want the new Doctor at Christmas or something, so then he had to do the Christmas one as well. Yeah, exactly. That's why Twice Upon a Time exists, because Chibnall didn't want <sighs> his tenured star. I, I understand. To be fair to Chibnall, I do understand that, because you'd, like... Just don't have a um, Christmas special. Like, I mean, <laughs> that's yeah. the solution. <laughs> I guess he probably didn't think he had that kind of authority yet as, as incoming showrunner, but yeah, yeah anyway... But the mighty Jagrafest that runs the BBC mm, demanded mm. a Christmas special. Mm. I that is unconfirmed. This is wild speculation about the internal structure of the BBC. Well, I remember there was there was wild speculation that the reason the reason that Chibnall was offered it rather than Whithouse was because Whithouse was seen as a not safe pair of hands because he was more experimental, uh, mm. and uh, the, apparently the rumor is, and again. We don't know if any of this is true. The, the, the rumour at the time was basically that the BBC were not entirely happy with the way Moffat had gone with some stuff. I, I assume particularly Peter Capaldi's Doctor and kind of the mm. more experimental stories. And yeah, they didn't want that again. They wanted someone who would be more kind of malleable, I guess. But whether that's true, we will never know, probably. Yeah, I um, mean, if it is, the monkey's paw has curled over a finger. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm in kind of a similar position to Bethan, I think. I did not remember this story at all. It was actually one that I hadn't rewatched before we came to do it for this episode. So I just didn't know what to expect, really. Especially, to be honest, when um, Toby Whithouse's name flashed up because he's got a bit of a mixed record. Mm-hmm. Um, What's so, he doing? So, on the one hand, God Complex. Very um, good. Which is good. Uh, School Reunion, which I have mixed feelings about, but generally like. It's got K-9. It does. Mm-hmm. Um, but also stuff like uh, Town Called Mercy, which is very kind of meh. Yeah. Mm. Uh, Vampires of Venice, which I would say no. similar. Mm. Lie of the Land, which I think I like more than a lot of people, but still yeah. isn't great. And he did, um, he did outside of Doctor Who, he did uh, Being Human as well. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. I like Being Human. I've not actually seen it. But anyway. Sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, I, um, I found myself enjoying it a lot more than I expected to, I think. Uh, I was pleasantly surprised. I would say, I think, um, as I kind of said with Magician's Apprentice, which is familiar, I think this is a little uneven in terms of... I think in this in this instance, I think I like Under the Lake a lot better than Before the Flood, which is by no means said that I dislike Before the Flood, which I think, still think is a good episode. But I think the payoff doesn't land quite as well as the setup in this instance for me. I think... The, it possibly just partly because Under the Lake does so well at sort of establishing the spooky, spooky atmosphere mm, mm. that um, I find a lot of the the plot logic in Before the Lake. I knew I was going to do that. Before the Flood, overly circular in a way that, like, while it does ultimately end up making sense, and perhaps I would actually enjoy it more on a, another rewatch for that reason, there are bits where, like, you know, the Doctor is like, oh, I have to confront the Fisher King now. And while the reason why does become apparent, it's you're kind of, as a viewer, left trailing a little mm-hmm. for, my, for my money. But despite that, I do really like it. And I think, yeah, I mean, the, the phrase, both of you mentioned the phrase base under siege, which I think is interesting in this regard, because the, the new series has almost weirdly with each doctor tried to have a go at a base under siege and so previously there's been impossible planet satan pit which i'll come back to in a moment and um rebel flesh the almost people both of which kind of take on that structure but what one of the things that's interesting is i think all three of those so the traditional base under siege story especially in the trout especially in um series five season five rather is um it's very much kind of a, a a claustrophobic environment that is generally under threat from some something external. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Like there's, I mean, many critics have suggested there is kind of a xenophobic uh, reading that you can take of that kind of story at the very least. And so what I think is interesting about um, the, the three stories that I've just mentioned, including this one, is that in all of them, the threat is to a greater or lesser extent internal. Uh, while actually, interestingly enough, not with Rebel Flesh, almost be- almost people, and without it's entirely internal. And uh, with Impossible Planet, Satan Pit, and Under the Lake Before the Flood, it's sort of an external force which is acting on the base, mm-hmm. but kind of turning it into a threat, which I think is an interesting kind of an interesting way to go with that. And I think this has a lot of common DNA with Impossible Planet, Satan Pit as well. Actually, there's the the untranslatable language is is kind of a a fairly direct 
mm. point of comparison, I think. Uh, and in both cases, that's kind of a source of fear and a source of mystery in itself, because it suggests something that is, on some level, unknowable. And with Impossible Planet Satan Pit, obviously, that comes to stand for something that is outside, that is in the realm of the metaphysical, to some extent. Whereas here, it's something a bit different. It's more something that exists on a kind of, almost like a subconscious level, which is also interesting. To be honest, I would have... I wouldn't have minded that being explored a little more, but, like, there's a lot going on in this story. So I think that's fair enough. Uh, it's another... It's it's the the concept that we see recurring throughout Moffat's tenure, that we saw actually in God Complex as well, of a monster or a threat that is mimetic, that kind of invades the mind, and that ex- exists and propagates through perception mm. on some level, uh, which is an interesting kind of recurring trend. And uh, I actually hadn't occurred to me before now that it's a trend in Whithouse's work as well, because it's they're sort of there with the monks as well in Life of the Land, although they're, you know, he's kind of picking up on the end of that trilogy. But anyway, I think one of the things that is interesting then with regard to that is again and again, this is a thread that is there in Impossible Planet Satan Pit as well, although there I think it's less overt. Um, we have the notion of the kind of the external threat is also and again this is there in Rebel Flesh Almost People as well almost and it, it, there's an external systematic threat mm. there's an, to put it bluntly there's an external capitalistic threat yeah. you know the, the base is uh, part of a wider system that is threatened by the system in which it is operating in this regard the, the bit that struck me is the in under the lake when the computer floods the base uh, in order to protect the nuclear reactor which on the one hand is actually not a totally unreasonable thing but on another level of course it is at the very least jeopardizing the lives and well-being of the crew if not just outright killing them in order to essentially protect the asset there's a sense of like simply of human life being undervalued there is it also to stop the nuclear reactor from like exploding and it, jeopardizing like I mean life? it is also that but like oh, okay mm. it's a very utilitarian uh, yeah yeah and obviously as well that has a and um, that ties into the the other time period the 1980s time period because uh, obviously then there is the sort of specter of Chernobyl yeah which I think is it's kind of something that the the story is gesturing towards rather than necessarily working with but i don't necessarily mean that as criticism i think that's perfectly valid for what it's doing oh one more thing that i think is very important to note is that peter capaldi looks very good as a ghost yeah <laughs> like it, it, it's not something that i would say of someone very often but on some level he just it just ghosthood sort of skeletal ghosthood just really suits him ironically those unseeing eyes are a look mm. anyway um uh, sorry, did you want to say No, anything? no, no. Because I've realised I need to talk about disability. Ah, um, yes. Um, because I I thought, I, I feel like it's really interesting what's going on with Cass. Um, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but I really like how, um, even though this is set kind of like a hundred years from, like over a hundred years from when it was broadcast, the way that they, the way that it's written to kind of accommodate 
Cass and her role in the base is not like as a tech solution. It's that she has a person mm. who interprets for her, which I really liked because I feel like in a lot of sort of sci-fi, the kind of lazier thing to do is be like, oh, well, we have this technology that fit that like means that this doesn't matter anymore, mm. effectively kind of erasing a disability. And so what I like about this is that it's it's not about even though this is a hundred years from now, it's not about like fixing in quotation marks the fact that she is deaf. It's about mm. like providing somebody and presumably this must be standard because I don't think that vector petroleum are likely to be the like standard bearers yeah. for workers' rights. So it's just a kind of nice way of writing a sort of sci-fi setting in which you have like disabled characters i would have like it would be nice to have a story with a disabled character where their disability where their disability didn't have to help them solve something in yeah. the plot yeah yeah i was like, thinking with this as well the, with the lip reading hmm. however at least in that instance i feel like it is done with a realistic expectation of what she can accomplish like hmm. it's not super easy for her to lip read it straight away and mm. they have to like get the ghosts in the right place and it's more just that she can do that more easily than other characters because it's something she's very used to doing mm. what i think is less good is the uh super sense like showing how she mm. feels the hammer dragging along yeah. the floor because I feel like you could kind of get across that that was how she understood it just by showing her touching the floor, but they have to do a whole, like, and this is how she, like, sees it with her super touch sense, even mm. though she can't hear, which I thought was a bit silly because you said it made her seem like Daredevil or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, When it's, like, it's fair enough for them to make the point of, like, oh, this sense is kind of how she knows something that she even though she can't hear it because there is this real sense of threat when she can't hear mm. that she is in trouble but i just thought it like overdid it a bit and made it seem like she was like super powered yeah also like somewhat related to Cass is i i didn't like the fact that her and lun like got together at the end of the story i thought that was a bit I felt like I think that Bennett having fancied O'Donnell and never said anything worked, hmm. especially because then Clara has to give the good advice that she may possibly not be heeding herself about him, how, how he can like deal with that grief. Hmm. But I feel like it felt a bit. I mean, you were saying after we watched it, Kieran, that you assumed that Pritchard and Moran must have had like the hots for each other as well, but they well, just died too early. <laughs> I mean, it seems to be the way things work on this base, so yeah. It seems like everybody was paired off, but mm. I kind of wish that like that that hadn't been a a thing, because especially partly because I didn't really get the vibe that they were into each other before then. I just thought they were like good friend colleagues and so it was kind of like disappointing that they couldn't just be like have a bond that wasn't romantic I yeah especially as like you would assume at least that the the relationship between someone someone in a position of relative authority actually as well and their interpreter mm is a relationship that needs to be very close, but needs to have very specific kind of... There needs to have specific 
expectations, if not necessarily boundaries attached to it. And yeah. so you would, it, it feels weird to transmute a relationship like that, that is very much a working relationship, uh, albeit a very, by necessity, a very close one, into that kind of romantic thing. Does, I, I'm struggling to say that it feels unethical on some level, but it it does on some level that I can't quite mm. articulate. There's something very, like, compulsory heterosexual relationship about it. Well, that's well. the other thing, yeah. Well, I think, I guess the thing is that the reason why it feels weird is perhaps because of the nature of how closely they'd have to work. You'd think that this would be something that they would surely have had to address by now. Yeah, that's Would too. they not have realised? I know that that's, like, not... Mm. I know that it's not always that people are great at communicating but their whole thing is based on communication and i don't know there mm. is there does it does feel like there's ethical complications as well with her being his superior at work but also him having a kind of like quite crucial role in yeah mediating the way she interacts with the world yeah but one thing i did want to say actually that i forgot to is the fact that uh, clara kind of also acts as the doctor's interpreter oh with yeah the cards, that's true. yeah which mm. i thought was interesting not because they were necessarily categorically saying that the doctor is also a disabled character but there's something of that in like needing prompts for how to interact with people that is maybe like his kind of alienness but it could mm. also be seen to like have bearing on certain disabilities that like humans mm. experience where you aren't that good at like reading people i guess yeah i mean just as you say it now it's reminding me of a much better version of that bit at the end of um can you hear me where graham was like oh so i'm quite sad and the doctor's like yeah i can't help you with that i'm socially awkward mm. Mm. like that except mm. much better i guess it's it's that but it's like the doctor understanding on some level that they do need to wanting or needing to communicate with people in a way that they that doesn't make them come off as like awful and clara is there to help them yeah for sure because they know that because that's a thing that they know they find difficult which i thought was quite nice like mm. I, it was funny because it's played as like a joke with the yeah. with the cards and stuff yeah and it does work on that level but i thought it was also kind of like a sign of their dependence on each other, but mm. also like a kind of, it was kind of interesting from like a, just from like a kind of, what would this kind of problem be, this kind of issue communicating with people look like from the perspective of another human rather than a Time Lord. And I think there is something there with like, sight, like, I don't know, autistic coding maybe? Yeah. Like, just, just something, I just thought it was like kind of interesting to maybe imply that the Doctor is also... A disabled character in this story yeah i mean the other thing obviously there which you kind of alluded to is just how much that interaction tells you about the doctor and clara's relationship like mm. um i was looking back on some of andrew ellard's tweet notes from um when the series was airing and he was saying um and i i think he's spot on with this that like just that little interaction kind of um immediately conjures up like in your imagination when did they come up with this? What did they have to sit down and come up with like a list of things? And like, was the doctor sort of interjecting like, oh, what if I run into this particular situation and stuff like that? So there's something, um, there is something just very pleasing about it. But also, yeah, it is this sense of like, um, 
it's 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 a nice sort of great note of the 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 symbiotic relationship that the doctor and clara have that we we're seeing throughout this series and uh, just one other thing i think um if we're tracking the sort of some of the arc of this series i think it's worth noting that as well as the um the focus on death and allowing death and um the the doctor's refusal to allow clara to be dead this story actually specifically i think it's before the flood does also uh, set up the idea that the sonic glasses are capable of erasing memories so that's just one tiny bit of plot architecture just slotted in in time for hellbent mm-hmm. which i spotted which i think is um just a really nice touch because like you're never going to remember it by the time hellbent comes along because it's just one line but look look it's one of the reasons why looking back you really start to appreciate the intricacy of this this series i think Okay, well, I guess on that note, we can finish up for part one of our uh, of our look at series nine. This has already been very interesting and very exciting, and I'm really looking forward to uh, what's coming up. So you can join us next time, where we will be looking at, in order, uh, The Girl Who Died, The Woman Who Lived, The Zygon Invasion and Zygon Inversion, and Sleep No More. So I hope you can join us then. Uh, until then, I have been Kieran. I've been Bethan. I've been Jacob. Oh, and also because I keep forgetting to do this, you can follow us at Lots Planets at Lots Planets Pod on uh, Twitter. We have an email address as well, which I can't remember offhand, but it's in the description of this episode. So email the things we got wrong. Yeah. Thanks. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>